Coming up on today's show, vaccine passports. They're already pretty much in place for a lot of different areas, and it causes a lot of questions and a lot of concern. We'll get an update from Florida from Reggie Cicchini, the Washington correspondent for Global News. And there's a new online calculator that can predict how long seniors have left to live. At this point, vaccine passports are not a question of if, it's only how far-reaching they will become. We know that travel already requires vaccination proof in uh, most respects already, you know, crossing borders, getting on planes, things like that. Universities are starting to talk about requiring vaccination for admission, especially into dormitories and residences and things like that. You know, we've seen some entertainment venues that have brought in rules about who gets to come in, you have to be vaccinated, on and on it goes. It's a really tough pill to swallow for people who have chosen not to get vaccinated, no doubt, but it's not... It's going to change the reality that we're living in. They're they're part of life and will be going forward for at least uh, the next little while. But like so many of the other things that we face during this pandemic, it's all a work in progress. And it's raising all kinds of questions when it comes to fairness, privacy, all these different sorts of things. Uh, and we're a little behind the curve, as we are with many things in responding to this pandemic. So we're going to chat now with Arthur Schaefer, who is the founding director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. Mr. Schaefer, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Nice to be with you, Shay. Yeah, these, I mean, I think we've all accepted the fact that some sort of proof of vaccination will be part of our life in the future. But has the government done the job in getting us there? It seems to me like it's really sort of confusing. There's a lot of questions, and uh, nobody is really sure exactly how this is going to look going forward. Yeah, I think the federal government has dropped the ball, and some provincial governments as well. So let me explain. Uh, a few months ago, uh, I was asked to be an expert consultant to to a special federal committee on vaccine passports. And uh, my view then, which is the same as my view now, is that vaccine passports are inevitable, not just for international travel, but um, until we reach zero COVID, which maybe never or maybe in six months or a year, uh, people are going to want to open up society as quickly as possible, uh, resume schools and universities and residences and go to restaurants and go to watch the... uh, Edmonton, I almost said Eskimos, but I should say Elks, Elks. I think, uh, and, uh, and go to their gyms. And these things can happen safely and in a way that makes it feasible, economically feasible for a restaurant to operate or a football team or a university residence only if people are vaccinated. So rather than uh, keep society uh, shut down, uh, for the next six months, year, or God knows how long, uh, vaccine passports are a way of opening safely. Now, those who uh, can't be vaccinated, um, I suppose, for example, you've had an organ transplant and you're taking immunosuppressive drugs, so the vaccine may not produce antibodies for you. Well, you're vulnerable. I think people who... Uh, are, whose health status makes them very vulnerable, likely won't want to go uh, to a concert right. or a stadium or, or, or a restaurant. But if they do, there won't be very many of them. And if they, if they can be guaranteed that the staff and the other people in the restaurant or in the gym are all fully vaccinated, then, then they might be able to come as well. So I think the vaccine passport 
which should be available as a plastic card with a barcode on it for those who don't have smartphones, as well as a, being a smartphone app. Um, uh, 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 if you if you had one that was forgery proof, and by the way, I think the federal government should have done one. Right. Uh, they should have made it. Uh, uh, privacy respecting, so the only information on it is your vaccine status. It should have been forgery proof. It should have protected medical confidentiality. It should be uh, inexpensive and effective. Uh, but the feds dropped the ball on that. There's going to be a vaccine passport for international travel, uh, but each province is on its own. Well, Manitoba's gone ahead, and we've got a plastic card uh, and an app. The plastic card is a barcode. Saskatchewan doesn't. Uh, I'm not sure what the position in Alberta is. But if you're, if you're unwilling to, uh, if you're able to have the vaccine, but you're, uh, you're uh, unwilling to, to take it, well, you're not safe, and other people aren't safe from you. So your neighbors who are fully vaccinated will be able to engage in activities, and you may not. I'll add one, one further qualification. Uh, you shouldn't be fired from your job because you're not fully vaccinated if you can work from home. Okay. On the other hand, if your job in, is in a long-term care facility sure. and you're, or, 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 or in a health clinic or a hospital and you're, you're changing bedpans and you're working closely with others, Masking and uh, distancing may not be possible. uh, Masking isn't safe enough. So you may have to find another job or you may have to work from home or you may have to do your university courses from home in order to protect the safety of others. But, hey, it was your choice. The vaccine's free. Uh, We should be giving everyone paid time off work to get vaccinated and having pop-up clinics. But then if if some people choose not to be vaccinated, well, a consequence of that is that they're they're not going to be able to endanger others by engaging in certain activities or or, uh, accessing certain services. You know, I, I mean, you wouldn't believe the angry people that are uh, sending me text messages as you and I talk. There's a, there's a group of people out there who think that this is completely unacceptable. Um, as you said, it's a choice. Um, and the reality of that choice is starting to smack a bunch of people in the head. Um, the concern, though, is what, what, what about fairness? I mean, we've never been a country before where we have these kinds of rules where certain people can do things and other people can't based on, you know, whatever the case may be. Obviously, there's a fairness issue here. Well, first of all, it it simply isn't true. Uh, You can't send your children to school unless the kids have been vaccinated. You can't drive your car unless you've got a driver's license. You can't get your driver's license unless you pass a vision test. Look, Shay, the, the, the essence of it is your freedom to wave your fist around in the air stops when it gets in the vicinity of my nose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the alternative to vaccine passports is that none of us gets to go to a restaurant or a football game or a gymnasium or to take our classes online or maybe even to attend school. So uh, the, the point about the vaccine passport is that it allows as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, to resume life as nearly normal as possible. It increases freedom. It doesn't decrease. The alternative is that we stay locked down and shut down and that small businesses go out of business and that 
Uh, nobody gets to attend uh, classes in person uh, or attend concerts. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you think, I mean, is the government working on this? Like you say, you were involved as an advisor in some capacity. Um, are we, are we going to catch up? Or I mean, we're so far behind at this point. <laughs> well, the federal government, uh, although it established a committee, and although at least some of the people on the committee uh, favored having a national vaccine passport, because, you know, we're going to get them. And if if uh, well, the province of Manitoba has established one, if the province of Saskatchewan doesn't, then, hey, you know what's happening? Uh, I, there's a yoga clinic, and they're requiring proof of vaccination before you can attend in person. You can do their sessions online but if you want to attend in person you've got to have it so it's going to be individual businesses it's going to be individual provinces uh some of the vaccine passports may not respect privacy some may be easily forged which by the way would totally undermine public health and safety if unvaccinated people can forge it uh so we're going to get them i think my view was that the federal government should have uh, devised the app, uh, made sure it was uh, it protected medical confidentiality and that and uh, uh, that it was inexpensive and and effective and readily available as a guide to the provinces. Well, the feds dropped the ball, so each province is doing it or not doing it. And uh, if Alberta doesn't do it, then. Uh, the Edmonton Elks are going to do it, and concert sure. promoters and are going to do it. And already are. And some of this will be challenged. Someone may say, um, it's a violation of my human rights under the Alberta Human right. Rights Code. If you exclude me from a gym, a restaurant, a concert, uh, a sporting contest, or my job, and those cases will be adjudicated. And what the Human Rights Tribunal will ask is they'll ask, was it really necessary to exclude these people from the service, uh, in the from service in the restaurant or or the concert or whatever the gym? And uh, if it was necessary to protect the health and safety of the other diners, the other students in residence, uh, the other people at the game, uh, if if the vaccine passport does effectively protect health and safety. If there's no less restrictive way of you, I mean, the meal should be available for takeout for those who right. yeah, can't be yeah. in the can't be in the restaurant. So, um, if you can work from home and your employer fires you, uh, that's going to turn out to be a violation of your human right. Uh, you should be able to work remotely. If your job can't be done remotely, and if your presence unvaccinated is a threat to other people uh, or to the other your fellow workers or uh, fellow employees or or customers or clients or patients, then sorry, it is a restriction on your liberty. But uh, y- your liberty uh, is is not an absolute right, and the alternative is massive. The massive restrictions sure. we've had with with society virtually being closed, for a year isolated and, a half. and quarantined for a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great. Arthur, I'm out of time. i got to run, but I appreciate your time this morning. Really nice talking with you, Shay. Yeah, you Have bet. a good Thanks day. very much. Um, a lot of you extremely angry uh, with what Arthur is saying. Uh, 
you gotta understand, Arthur's not making the decisions. I'm not making the decisions. Um, the reality is, and you're going to have to face it, these rules are already being brought in all over the place. And you can be angry about it, and I understand why you are. Uh, you can think it's unfair, on and on and on. That doesn't change the reality of airlines, um, dormitories, some businesses. The list goes on and on and on and on. And there's more added to it every day. They will be challenged in court, and we'll see where they fall. This is just what's happening. This is the reality in our country, and we, we you're going to have to deal with it. If you want to get on an airplane, you're going to have to prove you're vaccinated. That's the way it is. That's the world that we're living in. And I understand why it's frustrating and upsetting, but yelling at me and Arthur isn't going to change it. We're not the ones making the rules. And we're going to get an update from Surfside. Uh, in Florida now. A couple of things going on. There's some severe weather that could affect recovery efforts at the collapse of that condo building, and uh, four more victims have been pulled from the rubble, including one Canadian. So let's get the latest from um, Global News uh, Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini, who's been covering this story. Reggie, thanks for taking some time for us this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning. Yeah, uh, the, the recovery effort continues. Of course, we saw the, the other tower brought down yesterday uh, for safety reasons, uh, and now they're back on the rubble pile and uh, four more bodies pulled out, including a Canadian. Yeah, and this is a round-the-clock effort, uh, Shay. When we were in Surfside uh, for nearly a week last week, we saw this uh, underway uh, on an hourly basis, and the only time they would stop is when heavy rains would come in and lightning would strike because the crews would have to leave uh, that pile for about 30 minutes. We've seen that happen, uh, happen rather over the last 24 hours with a tropical storm uh, making its way towards the Florida coast. It was paused through the overnight hours. When that search, res- uh, search resumed, uh, we were given that update late this morning. Yes, four more uh, bodies were pulled out of there. Global Affairs Canada telling us one victim uh, is one of the four Canadians uh, that we've been told are missing. Uh, They have not released the identification. They are using the Privacy Act there, but they're also uh, not providing an update on the status of the three other uh, Canadians that are still missing in this you know, in this in this collapse site, but it's worth pointing out here that officials are still calling this yeah. search and rescue. They're not moving this to recovery. Yeah, which is really interesting. I mean, we're we're about a week out now, um, and they're they're continuing the effort. Like you say, it's around the clock. How many people are still unaccounted for, Reggie? So this this number keeps changing. Yeah. Uh, over the last couple of days, we've seen it come down. Uh, according to the the update that they gave this morning uh, uh, in Florida, it's at 113, but they said they're potentially missing, and that only. 70 of those uh, of those 113 are confirmed to have been in the building okay. uh, when it came down so it could be more they just don't know yet um and now the severe weather is uh threatening to delay whatever kind of effort is taking place there what's going on a tropical storm could be a hurricane what's what's the latest on that yeah so look it, it kind of carved its path through the through the caribbean it moved over cuba it lost some of its intensity over the mountainous terrain it's moved back over the water forecasters are kind of watching this as it moves towards the tampa area where it could touch down uh sometime in the next possibly 24 hours but because it's so wide because there is kind of a, a, a an extreme side of this on the eastern part of the storm there are meteorologists uh that are sitting in the surfside area to ensure uh that the the storm doesn't have too much of an impact there they are seeing rain they are seeing wind they are seeing it potentially get in the way uh, of the search and rescue effort but they've been preparing for this that's part of the reason we saw that building come down uh over the weekend was because they were fearful that any kind of a wind gust you know 40 50 miles an hour could potentially loosen any of that hanging debris that was on top uh but at the same time destabilize the ground underneath that building um and just uh, everybody keeps wondering about the cause what the cause and there's all kinds of different reports 
I guess we just have to be patient, right, until we get an official determination as to what brought that building down. Yeah, I mean, look, there are so many different investigations that are underway at the local level. We know the state's attorney is possibly going to convene a grand jury. We know that the president uh, had requested the National Institute of Standards and Technology to look into this. That's the agency that also looked into the World Trade Center collapse. They typically don't deal with just kind of a a structural failure in a building unless it's terror-related or weather. So this is a big move for Washington to have stepped in. Uh, They are uh, trying to deal with the fact now that other building doesn't exist. So they have to take the debris out. They've got to bring it to warehouses. They have to put it under forensic analysis you know more than four and a half million pounds of debris yeah. has already been trucked away this is not going to be something that they get an answer to in the days or weeks ahead this is something that's going to be months if not years out yeah exactly a little patience is in order okay reggie thanks so much for the update really appreciate it thanks that is reggie Giacchini, the washington correspondent for global news and as you heard he'd spent uh, about a week down at surfside um as he monitored the recovery efforts just uh, an absolutely horrific horrific situation there and uh, further complicated by the fact that this tropical storm um is moving into the region uh you know a baseball game's already been canceled in the area there's questions about whether or not yeah the canadians and tampa bay lightning are going to get into the area before the airport closes uh, it's a pretty severe storm that's moving in so obviously that's going to further complicate any kind of search and rescue efforts that are underway. They're still calling it rescue efforts. They will ultimately switch to search and recovery efforts once they believe there are no more survivors. But at this point, they're holding out hope and uh, continuing to call it a search and rescue effort. Uh, Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava says there are still, though, hundreds of people ultimately that are unaccounted for in this collapse. 191 people are accounted for and we have 113 reports of people who are potentially unaccounted for. So uh, obviously that's the emphasis right now, trying to figure out how this is going to work in terms of finding all those people. Uh, it's just uh, just a terrible situation. So we'll keep you up to speed on that. An interesting discussion right now. Never an easy discussion, but an important one. Uh, Talking about end of life. Always tough, but it's important to have a full understanding of the issues surrounding it. Now, here's a question for you. If you could be told, essentially, how long you have to live, would you want to know? That's part of the discussion that we're going to have. There's a new online calculator that can determine how long seniors have left to live. So why would you want to know that? Well, for planning purposes, truthfully. So let's get the details on the calculator, how it works, and some of the issues that it raises. Joining us now is Dr. Amy Shu, who is an investigator at the Breer Research Institute and lead author of this study. Uh, Dr. Shu, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Thanks for having me on the program. Okay, so first of all, it, it sounds like quite the thing, an online calculator. How, how does it work? What kind of data does it look at? So the calculator is called RESPECT, which is short for Risk Evaluation for Support Predictions for Elder Life in the Community Tool. As you mentioned, this is a calculator that was designed for frail seniors who might be needing supports and care in their homes, especially as they approach the end of life. And this calculator is based on an algorithm that estimates a frail person's survival, that is their life expectancy, how long they will live, using 17 questions about their health and their ability to care for themselves. So by that, I mean, you know, looking at the chronic illnesses, the diseases they might have, looking at how much support they need in sort of just carrying out daily activities, looking at their cognitions, and also other signs and symptoms of the kind. How accurate is this? Like, I mean, are we talking about, hey, you're going to die on this day? Obviously not. But does it say, like, 
within the next year, the next five years? I mean, how, how accurate is it? Yeah, so I think the first thing I want to emphasize is that the calculator actually uses data from home care users in Ontario. Sorry, I didn't clarify that earlier. But it's based on the the lived experience of people receiving home care. And some of them are actually at the end of life uh, and living in the community. And so when we're talking about accuracy, there's, of course, a metric that we use to assess accuracy. So, you know, on average, when you look at the accuracy of a clinician's prognosis of a patient's outcome, you know, they're typically about 60 to 65% in terms of the ability to make a prognosis that's beyond six months, at or beyond six months, whereas our calculator, our accuracy is at 76%. And the other thing is that coming back to my earlier point about using the data for home care user, you know, this is actually the lived experience. So we're not making up numbers yeah. in terms of your life expectancy. We're actually showing both the clinicians and the users of people who are similar to you with similar, you know, care needs and chronic conditions and characteristics, this is what their survival looks like. Okay, and the question obviously is why. I mean, it all revolves around planning, right, in a number of different areas. So so once we've got that knowledge, what can we do with it? Yeah, so sadly in, in Canada, you know, most Canadians who are over the age of 65 do not receive palliative care in their last year of life. And the example in Ontario, data from Ontario shows that, you know, only one in five Ontarians who die receive palliative home care. Now, this is important because actually quite a lot of uh, older adults prefer to die at home mm-hmm. or in a home-like environment where they're comfortable, such as a hospice. Right? So in order to provide the level of support that meets their care need, we need to be able to identify who needs that support and be able to plan from both a health system and health care care provider's perspective, but also in terms of family members and, you know, that readiness to have discussion about what they want, you know, in terms of their remaining days and how do you ensure that they have the highest quality of life. And do you find that, I mean, that I can see how that would be very valuable for family members who want to make sure they're doing the right thing, but really need some sort of idea and, and a way to formulate a plan. I imagine they would see this as very welcome information. Conducted several focus groups with patients as well as family members, and you know, resoundingly, everyone is supportive of having their clinician having access to this information. Right. So they believe this is data that their clinician, their clinical care team will need. And many family members, you know, when you're thinking about taking time off from work, this is really helpful because it contextualizes, it provides some numbers around, you know, what's the expected life expect, what's the anticipated life expectancy of this person, and so then you can make some decisions decisions about, you know, family vacations, taking time off work, and really maximizing the time that you have left with your loved ones and family. Yeah, making sure you're most available when it's most needed. And, And as you mentioned, you know, in terms of the medical care team and the people are involved, this kind of information also would be extremely beneficial because, I mean, it's just the reality. At some point, medical care switches from sustaining life to maximizing quality of life, right? That's right. I think everyone, you know, we all recognize that uh, death is part of life, even though we do find it very difficult to, to speak about yeah. death sometimes. But, you know, when, we're, um, when we have a capacity to anticipate and plan, it actually really increases the, the, the quality of life a person has in their remaining days. And that's a really important aspect from a care planning perspective because you want to make sure, you know, the patient is comfortable, is not suffering, and they're dying with dignity. Now, as you said, these are difficult discussions, and a lot of people don't like having these discussions. Are there people that just don't want to know this information? Are there people that have reservations about even being involved in something like this? 
Yes, of course. And we do believe, you know, our, our research team strongly believe that patients should be discussing and having this, uh, you know, receiving this information with the support of their family members and their care team. And so some of them may find it difficult to, to have this discussion, but that's why you have palliative care specialists and palliative care providers who can provide that support and help you address the concerns and the uncertainty that the person might have. And I think, like I mentioned um, earlier in our focus group, all the patients mentioned that even though some of them may not be ready to receive this information, they believe this is a tool that their care providers, care providers should have access to. Interesting. If people want to get involved, like, is what what's the age? And you know, I mean, obviously, it's not for everybody. I mean, there's going to be a specific group of people that can take advantage of this. Um, who are you looking for? And you know, who can use this? And how do they do it? Yeah, that's a great point. So the calculator is not designed for everyone. Right. I'm part of a research team called Project Big Life, and we have actually quite a few other health estimation and um, risk estimator on our website. It's called projectbiglife.ca. And this specific calculator respect is developed for older adults over the age of 50 and needing home or community care in, okay. in, their, in their home. And so, you know, this is typically individuals more on the side of, you know, being more frail than the average person. They already have some functional limitations that require support. So it's not for your average older adults either. Um, it's not designed for the average older adult. And, uh, you know, if anyone's interested, they're welcome to provide feedback to us through our website on the, about the calculator as well. And that's projectbiglife.ca. That's right. Fantastic. Dr. Shu, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.